0: I want you to think about what we just sang on Jordan's stormy banks. Because that is where we are. We're not there yet. But it's coming. And where where we stand, and we are feeling it more and more today, is that it's a storm. And that's exactly where the recipients of the letter of revelation that's where they were they were amidst life storm and the question is what would give them hope to keep going through to keep persevering well as john gives them as he receives this vision to give them it is the vision of heaven and with that in mind and after reading the word let's pray and then we'll dive into our text. Our Father, only you are able to help us see the infinite glories that lie ahead of those who are in Jesus Christ. Him who is the eternal, one, the infinite one, full of beauty and splendor and majesty. He is the heavenliness of heaven. And what a a sight it will be when finally we will be with him. And with him, everything else he has. And so in this life, as we wait, help us to have hope. Help us to long for home. Help us to long for holiness. Holy Spirit, give us listening ears. Bring sanctification and change to those who are in Christ and We also ask that you would bring conversion to those who are not believers. Overall, help us to leave here being amazed at Jesus. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Hurricanes have always been a part of what makes living on the Gulf Coast a risky business. I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, and... Uh, Grew up going down to Orange Beach, Alabama, which is right there on the coast near Pensacola, in between Pensacola and Mobile. And on August 17th, 1969, the second most intense hurricane of the last 120 years was getting ready to make landfall. It was getting ready to hit the states of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. And when my dad was 11 years old living in Mobile, Alabama, he knew that this storm was going to be a big one. And since they lived right on the water in Mobile, while they had to relocate in the couple of days before that, after boarding up their windows and and buying uh, batteries for flashlights, They had to relocate to another family member's house as they waited for Hurricane Camille, the Category 5 hurricane, to make landfall. About 60 miles down the road, down Interstate 10, was a very unassuming, short, gray-haired Welshman getting ready to preach in Pensacola, a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And on his last trip to the U.S. before he died, Lloyd-Jones came over to preach at the Pensacola Theological Institute. And with the hurricane bearing down on them, they moved his sermon up to 2 p.m. in the afternoon so people could be safe in their homes. And he preached a sermon never to be forgotten by the men that were there. You see, it was about 25 to 30 years before this event that Lloyd-Jones was preaching in London in the middle of of the Blitzkrieg. Lloyd Jones was a pastor in London during the time of World War II, and he knew what it was like to preach literally when bombs were exploding next door. Matter of fact, there's a very interesting story about how Lloyd Jones was in the middle of a sermon and he preached, or excuse me, he was praying, and a bomb exploded eerily close to them, and he paused merely for a couple of seconds and kept praying. Lloyd Jones knew what imminent danger was. And as this hurricane is is bearing down on the Gulf Coast, he preaches this sermon called the acid test. His big question was this. What do you feel like when you're sitting in an air raid shelter and you can hear the bombs dropping all around you and about you? And you know that the next bomb might land on you and that might be the end of you. That is the test. How do you feel when you're face-to-face with the ultimate, with the end? That was a very fitting question and a very fitting sermon to re-preach as Hurricane Camille was bearing down on them, a hurricane so strong that pine needles would pierce through the thick layers of pine trees. And as they're getting ready for that, Lloyd-Jones made them reflect, what would happen if you're about to die in the next couple of hours? That's a very fitting question also for the recipients of Revelation, because they were getting ready to get in a major storm. They were in the midst of what you could say, life's bombs dropping all around them as Christians were being persecuted left and right all around. them. And the question is, what would give them hope when they're face to face with the ultimate? How would they persevere? You might ask, how does this relate to us today? Well, I think in every way it relates to us today. Increasingly, we live in an era where it is getting harder and harder to be a Christian. We live amidst cancel culture where people are doing all they can to silence God's word. And when we're faced with these things, the question is, how will we have hope? Even if it comes to the ultimate, what's going to help us persevere? Well, the answer for Revelation is heaven. And that's the answer for us today. Heaven is home. Heaven is holy. Heaven is hope. Look at verses 1 through 2. Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Isn't this an amazing picture? I love what Revelation is doing, is that John is trying all he can as he has this vision of glory. He's trying all he can to use language to somehow give us a faint idea of what it's like. And the book of Revelation is not saying literally this is exactly what it looks like. John is, is giving this what's called this apocalyptic literature. This genre to make us think that there is something far beyond that is so infinitely glorious that we're using all the language we know in our, in our, in our range to try to express it. John shows us a river. And this river is bright as crystal. It's clear. It's more clear than any Caribbean island water that you could imagine. And doesn't this remind you of Genesis 2? Genesis 2, 9 through 10 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life. Does that sound familiar? The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. This is intentional. Because the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis one and two, and the last two chapters, Revelation twenty one and twenty two, it goes from garden to garden. And we live in the time period where we're we're in between gardens. This is Jordan's stormy bank. And we wait for for the greater garden, Eden 2.0 or Eden Remixed, you could say, when it will envelop this world. And the river that's flowing through heaven is, is what gives life. Ezekiel knew this promise in Ezekiel 47 verse 1. He wrote down this, which Ezekiel was also seeing a vision. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from, before, from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. <laughs> One author who is commenting on this verse in Ezekiel 47, here's what he says. The river is flowing towards the Dead Sea. Where it would heal the sea of its saltiness in order to give life to fish. Because there's no life in the Dead Sea. That's why we call it the Dead Sea. There's a a lesson for you kids. Why do we call it the Dead Sea? There's no life in it. Do you see what this is saying? Something that is as dead as the Dead Sea. When the rivers of water of life flows into it, there will be a transformation to it. And it's this incredible picture. Because what is heaven? Heaven is the place where we truly live. Heaven is the place where even though we're the walking dead on this earth, as we could say, that's where we have full life. And where where is this river flowing from? Well, look at it. It's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. But would you notice that? Notice that it's one throne, two persons. One throne of the Father and the Son. But notice that it doesn't say of the Son. It says what? The Lamb. Why would it say the Lamb? Why would Lamb constantly be talked about in Revelation? Here's why. Because back in Exodus 12, when the Israelites were in bondage, how were they delivered out of slavery by Lamb? And that lamb was looking forward to the true Passover lamb in Jesus Christ. Here is what John is saying: that it is by the blood of Jesus that we are able to have real life. By His death, we are able to live. And this water is flowing from the throne of God. And isn't it so interesting that in John nineteen thirty four, after Jesus? Is is dead, one of the soldiers who's beside him takes the spear and thrusts it into his side, and when he pulls it out, what comes out? Water and blood. That's obviously pointing to something symbolic that these waters represent the presence of God that that flows all throughout heaven. <clears throat> now, where where is the river flowing from? Well, you see it right there, it's flowing from the throne of of God and it's flowing. Was it flowing through? It's flowing through the city. Now try, try to imagine this. As it flows through the city, as it flows through this garden city, what do you see there? That's on on either side of the river, but the tree of life. If heaven is showing us something, is that what makes life? Life is there. What makes life? Life is coming from the presence of God. And Ezekiel says this again in chapter 47. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went, I saw on the bank, the river, uh, the bank of the river, very many trees on the one side and on the other. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary and their their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Here's what's happening. John is doing all that he can to show us that amidst all the hurts and pains in life, amidst all the death that you're seeing around them, even the death of Christians in your community, that what lies ahead of us through the veil is life everlasting. Life everlasting in its quantity, but life everlasting also in its quality. That if you think of heaven, you must think that this is the place where we will truly live. In other words, your best life is not now. If your best life is now, then heaven is not for you. But in Jesus Christ, it means that our best life is not now, it's coming. There was a little girl who was taking a walk with her father one evening and she looked up at the stars and here's what she said. Oh, Dad, if the wrong side of heaven is so beautiful, what must the right side be? And in a lot of ways, this is the wrong side of heaven. And what John is trying to get you to do amidst the storms in Jordan's stormy bank to say, look, life is coming. Heaven is home. Heaven is also holy. Look at verses three through four. <clears throat> Excuse me. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Heaven is not only home. Heaven is holy. Holy. Heaven is where purity is infinite. Loveliness is infinite. Beauty is infinite. There is nothing left of the curse. You remember the curse in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve took the fruit. And God had given them in the covenant of works. He had given them blessings and he had given them curses. And based on how Adam would live is how we would receive either blessings or curses. And we know what happened. He took the fruit, and he sinned against the Lord, and he ate. And in Genesis 3, verse 14, you see God giving the curse to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. Here's what you need to know about the world. The reason the world is today the the way it is, is because of sin and the curse. That's what we call worldview. When you look at the news and you think, why are things the way they are? It's because of sin. Make no mistake about it. Psychologists might try to give some answers. Philosophers might try to give some answers. Whatever other professors might try to give some answers. This is the answer. The reason why the world is the way it is is because of sin. Because of the curse. But heaven's the place where there's no more of that. Heaven is the place where there's only blessing. But you need to ask the question, why? Galatians 3 tells us the answer why. Because in Galatians 3, Paul says this, that Jesus became a curse for us so that we might receive his blessing. I want you to think about this. As beautiful as heaven will be, the infinite blessings that we will partake in For eternity in heaven, for us to receive that, how bad must the cross have been for Jesus? What must he have taken for you and for me in order for him to give us his heaven? Well, I think we can say this. Jesus literally took your hell so that he could give you his heaven. That's what happened on the cross. That when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something major was happening there. But think about his love for you and me. Because he was willing to stay up on that cross because he was determined to give us heaven. That's love. Heaven is holy. Heaven has nothing of the curse in it. There's no more curse relationally. Think about this. No more broken relationships. No more families torn apart by divorce. No more unresolved conflict. No more mistrust of others. No more ungodly anger. No more rivalry. Heaven is the place where you will have perfect relationships with everyone for all eternity. Friendship's going to be awesome. Right? People are going to be awesome. And we're going to be able to be in perfect relationship with them because Jesus is the one who purchased it for us. But it's not just relationally, it's also environmentally. No more devastating hurricanes. No more devastating tornadoes or the earthquake that we felt earlier, which was, I don't know if y'all felt it here, but we had still water and it was weird. That even in Romans 8, it talks about how creation longs for the day when everything will be glorified. Even environmentally, the weather will be exactly the way it's meant to be in every region of the globe. Think about physically. Heaven changes everything physically. No more mental illness. No more depression. No more anxiety. No more lingering shame. Even physically, no more cancer. No more paralysis. I have a teammate from Tulane where I played football, and we came up several years ago to play Tulsa. And seconds before the first half ended, my buddy was going in for a tackle. and When he went in for a tackle, he collided with another player head to head, and at that point, immediately, he was paralyzed from the neck down. Do you know what's amazing? He might never be able to walk again in this life, but if he's a believer— He will not only walk, he will sprint. That's what will happen to us physically. No more special needs. No more handicaps. No more death. That's what it means with the curse to be gone. Heaven also means that with our perfect bodies, we'll have perfect senses. I want you to think about this. Have y'all had gumbo? Now, hold on now. Gumbo is pretty amazing. Do you know how amazing it's going be, to be in heaven? Look, we went to school at Tulane. Gumbo's good. <laughs> but think about what our bodies will be able to experience. Think about the sounds of animals that we'll be able to hear or to see the beauty of mountains or to smell the flowers of the field or even this. To feel the touch of a Nathan Carroll bear hug. Right? Nathan's one of my former students. I can call him. In our bodies, we will be able to experience things the way they were were meant to be experienced. Even think about this. Think about the intellect in heaven. Think about the genius that will be in heaven. I'm reading a great biography right now of Mozart. And when Mozart was even seven years old, he was a child prodigy. And it was amazing how skilled he was. And people would often put him to the test because they thought there's no way this kid can be that genius. But let me tell you something. In heaven... He will be as if nothing compared to the intellect and the genius there. Because minds will be perfect. (laughs) Think about this. In heaven, everything will change spiritually. No more spiritual anxiety. No more, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, no more spiritual depression. No more shame of sin. That one sin that you think about that you've done either recently or a long time ago that you hope no one else in here, especially your pastor, you just hope no one else would know, here's the thing, in heaven, no more shame. No more struggling with doubt. No more lack of assurance of God's love. No more sin, not even temptation. See, here's what happens. When Jesus saves us, he doesn't bring us back to where the first Adam was, where there was still the possibility to sin. No, no, no. In heaven, there's not even the possibility to sin. Think about the freedom. There will be more of a transformation for us spiritually of being rid of sin than a fish would live without water. Because that's how close sin clings to us. But spiritually, we know that we will be transformed. There's not going to be any more of the Romans 7, Galatians 5 struggle. We try to follow the Lord, but it's hard. Sin lies close at hand no more. Perfect freedom. Think about what Jesus must have done on the cross for us to have that freedom. There is also the throne. Look at it. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. I have a student who's actually from this area. He has a mentor. Who who knows? It could be one of you. I don't know. If it is, let me know. He He has this mentor growing up, and his mentor would often say to him, I know that there is a God, and I know that I'm not him. Do you know what heaven is? Heaven is finally the place where we stop trying to be God. That's the original temptation. If you take the fruit and eat it, you will be like God. But in heaven, we will finally stop building our own towers of Babel. And we'll finally know that when we look at the throne, there is one God. And it is good that he is God. As a matter of fact, he's a way better God than if we were God. And and because of the throne, it says this. And his servants will worship him. Now, to be sure, some of you, when you picture heaven, you think of like, maybe this is how you picture this, is how I picture when I was little, that it was like this spiritual fishbowl and you would just kind of float around and not really have control. And you would just be singing all the time as, as angels played on harps. Uh, That's not what heaven's like. Heaven is amazing. But nevertheless, the central act of heaven is worship. And matter of fact, what corporate worship is every single week, it is a foreshadowing of what heaven will be like. Worship where we will sing to the Lord. Worship where we, where we will hear the word proclaimed. Worship where we will be amazed at who our God is. And we will continue to grow in the knowledge of him day by day. And do you know what that worship does? It will send us out into his creation, truly enjoying it the way it's meant to be enjoyed. Zachariah, uh, what is it? Um, Zechariah 8 verse 5 says this. The streets of the city shall be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. No longer will you be having to, whenever you play kickball in the street and the car is coming, that you're going to have to worry about any danger. You see, worship in heaven will send us out into the world. And as we experience the new creation, it will make us eager to gather again. Worship will be why we are there. Worship will be what we long for. But look at verse four. This is the most amazing part of heaven right here. They will see his face. Could there possibly be a greater hope in all the world than this? Because what gives us most spiritual anxiety, we could could say, is the temptation to believe that God has turned his face away. But let me tell you something. If you're a Christian and only if you're a Christian, the father turned his face away from the son on the cross so that he would never turn his face away from you ever. And in heaven, it will finally be realized. The fullness of the face of God will be realized. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 8, that those who are pure in heart, they shall see God. That's the promise. But there's also a problem that Moses had in Exodus 33 and 34. If you remember, after the golden calf incident, the people of Israel had sinned and God was threatening to leave the people. And Moses said, Please don't, but rather, in your mercy, show me your glory. But God tells him this You cannot see my face and live. But now in heaven, now in heaven we will. Because sin will be no more. We will be able to see the face of God. As a matter of fact, as as John says in 1 John 3, 2, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you know how you grow in the Christian faith right now? By looking continually at Jesus Christ. And then in heaven, when you see his face as it is, You'll be perfected. You know, we, if you hang around me a lot, you'll start to get a southern accent. Mm Mm-hmm. And I hope my son gets one, even though my wife doesn't want that. You see, when we hang around people, we start to kind of get that accent a little bit. Well, when we look at Jesus's face, we start to get that spiritual accent. And the more and more we look to him, the more and more we are like him. And then finally, in glory, we will be perfected. That's what it means when it also says that his name will be on our forehead. The name also means it's it's his character. In other words, this. In the very beginning, God created us in his image to image him. And in heaven, we'll finally be able to perfectly do it. It'll be the banner. It'll be what everyone sees. They'll no longer remember us for our sins, but they'll see us in light of Jesus Christ. And some of you, that's almost impossible to think about because you've done something and everyone in here looks at you as that person. But in heaven, no more. C.S. Lewis says this, to enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on this earth. And why is that? Because Jesus is there. And he is the true human. Because he is like us in every single way, yet without sin. And because of that, when you have Jesus Christ, you will be like that. (laughs) The pastor, Richard Baxter, says this. Why are, are not our hearts continually set on heaven? Why do we not dwell there in constant contemplation? Bend your soul to study eternity. Busy yourself about the life to come. Habituate yourself with such contemplations and let not those thoughts be seldom or little, but bathe yourself in heaven's delights. Do you know why we're not very earthly good today? Just on the whole, we're not very heavenly minded. Because some people will say if you're too heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. But actually, I think there's a very good uh, biblical precedent that says this. We're not very earthly good because we're not very heavenly minded. Because we're grasping onto this world, wanting it to be God to us, but it will never happen. We need the world to come. Heaven is holy. Heaven is also hope. Look at verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, when it says here, that night will be no more it it doesn't literally mean no night what it means is night is symbolic for evil for evil lurking in the dark it means that there will be no more sin no more satan no more danger no more curse no more rebellion not even the possibility of it heaven is also described as a place where the gates are always open why because there's no threat Night will be no more. If night will be no more, I want you to hear this. I tell my students this all the time at OSU. It means you don't have to live in what-if land. Often in our minds right now, and the reason why we get so anxious is because we go into our mental what-if land. What if I get hurt? What if my boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with me? What if... I get sick. What if my children get sick? What if I die? What if my parents die? What if this? What if that? And we live in this what if land, don't we? And we often make ourselves go through that emotional pain ahead of time when that's just a hypothetical. It's not the reality. We're constantly living in what if land. But in heaven, there's no more what if land. It is only what's real. Because there's no possibility of evil. There's no more night. There's no more sin. There's no more temptation. Satan has been cast down forever. The gates will always be open. Imagine just the rest you'll be able to experience there. You see, the reason why there's no more darkness in heaven is because when Jesus was on the cross, he experienced the ultimate darkness. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, actually at the height of the sun when it was noon. It went completely dark. Certainly a reminder of the ninth plague in in Egypt when darkness fell over the land. And what it was showing was that God had turned his back on his son. Jesus was facing the ultimate darkness so that we might never have to experience that. That's what's amazing. Jesus will be our light. What this means is that there will be no more need. I love what Joel Beakey says. Everything that is good. Think about this. Everything that is good will be provided in the heavenly Jerusalem, a garden city, people we love, safe streets, unending supplies of food and water or gumbo. And the stupendous relationship and harmony of the Holy Trinity. There will be no more need. There will be no more wish list. There's a widely respected man who was known as Uncle Johnson, and he had died in Michigan at the uh, the age of 120. And <laughs> excuse me, when he was advanced in years, his pastor caught him one day singing songs of praise to God, and his pastor was passing by, and he looked over the fence and he called out to him. He said, "Uncle Johnson, you seem so happy today." Uncle Johnson says, yes, I was just thinking. The pastor said, thinking about what? He said, oh, I was just thinking about that. If the crumbs of joy that fall from the master's table in this world, if those are so good, what will the actual loaf in glory be like? I tell you, sir, there will be enough for everyone and some to spare up there. Do you know what heaven is like? Heaven is not just the glass being full. It is as if you take that glass and you put it in the bottom of the ocean. Is the glass full? It is full. But it is far overflowing than what it could contain. Do you know what heaven is? Heaven is the place where when you live, when you live one of the days of eternity there, and you will think about God's creation, you will think about God's love for you in Jesus Christ, and you will say there could not possibly be a greater day than this. I cannot possibly know the love of God greater than I know it right now. And you know what will happen? You'll say that again the next day. And you'll keep growing more and more and more. That's what we long for. Heaven is a place where happily ever after is actually true. Here's the question. How do you get there? When you receive Jesus Christ and only when you receive Jesus Christ with him, you get heaven. But if heaven is a place where that you want to be in, but you don't really want Jesus, then you won't receive heaven. But when you receive Jesus Christ freely of his grace with him, you receive everything. And actually, we could say this. Receiving Jesus is heaven. Heaven. Because Jesus is the heavenliness of heaven. Anne Roth's cousin, who is inspired by Samuel Rutherford, she wrote her hymn and it says this, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gives, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. You see, here's the point for this text for you today. Is that hopefully this will give you a holy homesickness. That hopefully this text, as it was meant for the original audience, is something that you can look at and you can say, I want to be there. That my greatest longing is the face of Jesus Christ. And that it would loosen our grips on this world and make us long for the next. It doesn't mean we give up on this world. But matter of fact, when we hope in that world, it transforms the way we live in this world. That's the acid test. And when culture is getting more and more secular, more and more rejecting Christianity, what will be your hope, King's Cross? What will be the hope of my students? Because the the time is coming when you will have to say yes to scripture and no to man. And when you say yes, they might cancel you or they might kill you. But heaven is your hope. That's why you can persevere. And if you're a believer, this is yours. And if you're not, don't try to clean yourself up. Don't try to be good enough. Because we're a bunch of hypocrites. Welcome to the club. Come to Jesus Christ. Receive him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our father, we ask that you would just give us a holy imagination. Of what that world will be like. And how filled with your glory it will be. When we dwell there in Emmanuel's land. Always looking at the face of the bridegroom. Lord. Lord. Impress that upon our hearts today. And as we sing, as we pray, as we partake in the supper, may we have a holy homesickness. a Homesickness for Jesus. So Lord, bring us, bring us to him. We ask all this in his name. Amen.